chapter 1, the next to last book of your Old Testament, the book of Zechariah and chapter 1. There are Bibles in the back, but you may want to, all of you actually, look on the screen today because we're going to fly through some stuff. This is our third summer series in what are called the Minor Prophets. They are, they are not minor in importance, just shorter in size. If you've been around for this, you know two summers ago, we studied the minor prophets that, that wrote before the exile of the people of Judah to a place called Babylon. And then last summer, we looked at prophets, minor prophets, who wrote after that exile and the return of some of those people from exile. And Zechariah is one of those, one of those who prophesied after that big event, that exile to Babylon, and people began to return. I want to ask first, though, why do we do this? Why the prophets? Why preach from some of these prophets? Well, we return to the prophets to make sure we are hearing the whole counsel of God. We don't want to just preach our favorite sections or the parts that are perhaps easier. We want to hear the whole counsel of God. Our souls are fed that way in ways they wouldn't be otherwise. And we know our God better as a result. But I admit, the prophets are not always easy. The great reformer, in fact, Martin Luther, said the following. Luther said, the prophets have a queer way of talking. Like people who, instead of proceeding in an orderly manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make head or tail of them or see what they are getting at. That's a very encouraging quote to me. That's true of Zechariah. Zechariah has at times a queer way of talking. But, friends, the prophets are worth the effort. Please hear that. The prophets are worth the effort, especially because you see Jesus here. The New Testament writers, in fact, the New Testament writers refer extensively to Zechariah, especially in the Gospels, in the Passion accounts, as Jesus is going to his suffering, and in the book of Revelation. I'll make a couple references to that. So this book, the book of Zechariah, will help us see Jesus better and love Jesus more and worship him all the more. And so let's pray to that end and then jump in. We pray, Spirit of God, you would, you would open the eyes of our hearts. You would help me to be clear. You would help us to hear from you. Let us hear from you through your word to see our Savior. I pray that you would comfort, strengthen, and encourage us as we do. We ask you for help in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah 1, verse 1. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, son of Barakiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Now, verse 1 says it's the second year of the Persian ruler Darius. That means, that means it's 520 B.C. We know very specifically it's 520 B.C. A little bit of background. In 538 B.C., 
the Persian king Cyrus had said to the exiles, y'all go home now, all right? Go back home and rebuild your temple because the Persians had conquered the Babylonians. And some people, some people returned to the land and the, the foundation for the temple was laid, new rebuilding, the new temple, the foundation for that was laid in 536. But then the work stopped and now it's 520. Okay, so the place of God's presence among God's people has been on hold for 16 years. The prophet Haggai has been addressing that situation. And now God calls Zechariah to do the same. In the verses we read, the, the judgment of the exile is reviewed a bit. And the lesson, the takeaway is in verse 3, where God says, Return to me and I will return to you. I'm going to meet you. So the people must devote themselves to God and trust that God indeed is going to be again devoted to them. They must trust that God will be working out His purposes despite what they can see or perceive right now. It's a lot like our day. It's a lot like what you and I must do. We can look around and say, where is the country going today? Maybe God is not at work here anymore. Or look at the state of the church in the world. She's not moving forward in the power of the Holy Spirit. We could think maybe, maybe the cause of Christ is forever hampered or, or maybe somehow defeated. You ever think that way? Those, those thoughts cross your mind sometimes? You ever look at the world or the church or maybe your own life and have those discouraged, maybe even defeatist kinds of thoughts? Probably we all do at times. And so the book of Zechariah is for us. The book of Zechariah has a message for us. For here, in these chapters we're going to look at, here God encourages His discouraged people through eight visions. We're going to see eight visions. And these visions have been called a, a mosaic, and, and Zechariah, an artist. It's kind of like a mosaic of stained glass. And it's a little hard to see what's going on when you're up close. But when you take a step back and the light shines through the stained glass of this mosaic, you see the glorious picture God is showing of himself and his work in the world. Now these visions, these eight visions, they, they are structured and they, they relate somewhat in pairs. And so I want to see four pairs of visions and then draw some lessons today. Now we're going to cruise through this first part pretty fast. Here's the first pair. Visions one and eight connect. And I would say here that God will accomplish all his purposes. That's the lesson. Vision one is in chapter one. Zechariah sees a man riding on a red horse, and there are some other multicolored horses there. And Zechariah asks an angel, what are these? What's up with all the horses? And he's told, these are being sent out to, quote, patrol the earth. They are emissaries of God to bring back a report. And their report is this, the earth remains, quote, at rest. So the angel asks, how long, God, will you have no mercy on Jerusalem? You've been disciplining your people through exile all this time. And in verse 
13 of chapter 1, we read, And the Lord answered, Gracious and comforting words. Gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, Thus says the Lord, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, his people. And I'm exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they, they furthered the disaster. They made, it, they made it worse. So he's saying, I'm going to deal with these nations who are, quote, at ease or, or at rest. Okay, keep that in mind. And he's going to meet his people. Verse 16, therefore, the thus says the Lord, I have returned. Notice that. I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. And my house, the temple, shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts. And the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So God himself, God himself will make sure the temple is rebuilt, his people reestablished, and those hostile nations who seemed at rest or at ease, God's going to address that. And he talks to that in vision 8. So skip to vision 8 in chapter 6. In vision 8, you find horses again. Now it's horses with chariots also sent out to patrol the earth. You see the connection. But there's a difference now. In the first vision, the nations are at rest. But now in vision 8, we read this, chapter 6, verse 7. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go, patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have, quote, set my spirit at rest in the north country. See the contrast? First vision, the nations are at rest. The nations are kicking back. All is well. Eighth vision, God says, I'm at rest. I'm at rest in the north country the former area of my enemies. In other words, victory will be accomplished. God's purposes, all of God's purposes, will come to pass. That's the first pair. Second pair, visions two and three, the lesson is that God will overcome all opposition to his people. He'll overcome all opposition to his people. Vision two is in chapter one. Zechariah in vision two sees now four Horns and a horn here is a, a metaphor for a power or a kingdom. And these, we're told, are the, the powers that scattered the people of God. So these, these hostile powers. But the horns now in this vision are countered by four craftsmen or other powers. And these craftsmen know how to deal with those opposing horns. Chapter 1, verse 20. Then the Lord showed me four craftsmen, these other powers. And I said, what are these coming to do? And he said, these are the horns, the powers that scattered Judah so that no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, those hostile powers. Those craftsmen have come to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. In other words, it seems to be an issue of justice, of justice. Will there be retribution against our enemies who are opposing us and who opposed us in the past? Will there be justice done against them? And God says, I will certainly, make no mistake, deal with those who oppress my people. 
This is our hope. It's the church's hope. God will deal with those who persecute his people. In fact, we see, we see a picture of his protection in the paired vision of vision three. Vision three is in chapter two. In vision three, Zechariah sees a man with a measuring line in his hand. He's going to measure Jerusalem in its future restored state. So chapter two, verse three. Chapter 2, verse 3, And behold, the angel who talked with me came forward, and another angel came forward to meet him and said to him, Run, say to that young man with a measuring line, say to that young man, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as villages without walls. Why no walls? Because of the multitude of people and livestock in it. Verse 5, And I will be to her a wall of fire. All around, declares the Lord, and I will be the glory in her midst. You see, you have to realize that life for these returned exiles was difficult. It was difficult. They had, they had stopped the temple project, not really because they got lazy. There was opposition. And the land they're coming into is just devastated. Their, their houses have to be rebuilt, communities rebuilt. And in fact, Haggai tells us there's crop failure because God is trying to get their attention. Life was hard. And maybe you can relate to that. Maybe it's hard for you right now. Maybe it's really hard. And you feel beaten down and maybe even tempted to give up. God promises his people that one day full blessing will come. In fact, he says here in these verses that his people will be so blessed, so so expanded that walls won't be practical anymore. They won't be able to hold it all in. But he says in verse 5, did you notice? God says, I will be their wall. I will be a wall of fire around my people. God, he says, will protect them. I'm their wall. I will protect them. It's really a picture pointing forward to a redeemed world, a new heavens and a new earth where God is in our midst he is preserving and protecting his people, really, forever. In fact, chapter 2, verse 8 says something very sweet. Chapter 2, verse 8 says that God's covenant people, his redeemed people, are the, the apple of his eye. Right, right, just, you know, the middle part of your eye there, very sensitive part. God is saying, you're, you're very precious to me. Saying, I cherish you, I love you. I'm going to preserve and protect you forever. Think about that. Nothing can come into your life. Nothing can come into your life that is not first filtered through the sovereign, loving hands of God. Nothing can touch you that does not first pass through that filter of God's sovereign, loving, caring hands the apple of his eye. So God will overcome all opposition to his people. And then the next pair. It's sort of building, isn't it? His purposes will come to pass. He'll overcome all opposition. He'll protect his people. And then vision six and seven, we find now God will purify his people. God will purify. Vision six, chapter five. Chapter five, Zechariah in vision six sees a, a flying scroll 
flying scroll. And here's this explanation, chapter 5, verse 3. This is the curse, the curse that goes out over the face of the whole land. For everyone who steals shall be cleaned out according to what is on one side. And everyone who swears falsely shall be cleaned out according to what is on the other side. I will send it out, declares the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief and the house of him who swears falsely by my name. And it shall remain in his house and consume it, both timber and, and stones. So these sins here are highlighted, really representative of people defying God, it seems. They're defying God and saying, I don't care what God says. I don't care what the Bible says. I'm doing it anyway. That seems to be what God is addressing amongst his people. And so this scroll has, this scroll has the, the covenant curses, you know, the, the flip side of the promises. It's really a call to repentance. But there's hope here as well in the next paired vision, vision seven. Vision seven is next. And Zechariah here sees a woman in a basket. Chapter 5, verse 6. And I said, what is it, this basket? What is it? And he, the angel, said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, that, uh, this is their iniquity, their sin in all the land. Catch that? This is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the, the leaden cover was, was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he said, this is wickedness. And he thrust her back in the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. Now, it's not a statement here against, against women at all. Don't misunderstand. The Hebrew word for wickedness is feminine. And so wickedness is being personified by, by a woman in this basket. It's the Old Testament version of the great harlot in Revelation 17. All kinds of connections here. But the basket is being taken out away from the people. I mean, this the, the whole putting the lid back on top of it is sort of God's got this under control and maybe taking out idolatry from the presence of his people. He's going to eradicate idolatry. He's taking this basket to Babylon in verse 11, the land of Shinar, where idolatry belongs, basically. I'm getting it away from my people. So God has purified his people, isn't he? He's purified, which is good. And all this, all this is building toward a climax. You see, in, in English literature, where is the climax typically? If you're watching a movie, it's, it's at the end, isn't it? It all builds to the end in English. In Hebrew literature, that's not always the case. They have a structure where the climax is in the middle. And that's what we just walked through. Vision 1 and Vision 8 are paired. And then Visions 2 and 3. And then 6 and 7. Do you see what's happening? We're building a kind of pyramid with the pinnacle, the climax, right in the middle, Visions 4 and 5. So you want to pay careful attention to Visions 4 and 5. If so far you've said, Tab, I am lost and I wish I was still in bed, I understand but here's the pinnacle, okay? Tune into visions four and five, where I would say the lesson is that God will restore his people with his presence. God will now restore his people with his, and this, this is very sweet and amazing. Vision four in chapter three. Chapter three, verse one. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, 
and Satan, the accuser, standing at his right hand to accuse him, to charge him with wrong. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuked you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuked you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Is not this guy a flaming stick I am saving by my grace? Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. So now we're taken to the temple area. In fact, Zechariah is from a priestly family. So he, he knows what this is like. He, we're taken to the temple and we see a vision of the high priest Joshua and he's on trial by Satan, the accuser, and Joshua is guilty. That's the deal with the filthy clothing. He's guilty before God, just like we are. He's wearing his guilt and shame before the living God. Joshua is a guilty sinner. So how, how can he act as priest for the people? Answer, when God gives him clean clothes. Verse 4, And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity, your sin, away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments, pure clothing. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. It is the reinstatement of the high priest Joshua. But Joshua also represents the people. That's part of his job. So this is a picture, this is a picture of God cleansing all of his people. It's a picture of the gospel, the good news in the book of Zechariah. Did you see it? Here's the gospel in the Old Testament and many other places too. When we turn to Jesus and trust in his life, death, and resurrection, this is what he does for you. He takes your filthy garments, the guilt and shame of our sin. He takes that off of you and he puts on you the, the spotless robe of righteousness purchased by Jesus Christ, earned by God the Son. We're credited, listen, we're credited with the perfect standing of God the Son. It doesn't get any better than that. You can't be more pleasing to God than that. The perfect righteousness of the God-man is credited to you by, by faith through grace alone. You're no longer wearing those filthy garments before God. You're now wearing the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. You are declared righteous that way through faith alone. Are you aware of that? It's a wonderful picture of what God does for you in Jesus. Through faith, through simple, open-handed, I believe. I need that. If you're here and you've not yet trusted Jesus Christ, just say in your heart, friend, I need that. I believe, Jesus, you've accomplished that. And this all points forward to Jesus himself. One called the branch in verse 8. Look at verse 8, chapter 3. Hear now, O Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are a sign Behold, I will bring my servant, the branch. This is one Jeremiah had prophesied about, the branch. And then verse 9 goes on to say, 
and I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. I'm going to get rid of the sin of my people in a single day. And we know how that happened, don't we? We know how that happened. We know the day, the decisive day, when our sins were dealt with in full. It's what we sang about. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, oh, my soul. We know that day, friends. We know what Zechariah is prophesying about. So Joshua is recommissioned, but he's pointing forward to one to come. And so is the governor named Zerubbabel, because he is from the kingly line of David, and he shows up in our last vision, vision 5, in chapter 4. In vision 5, now Zechariah sees lampstands. And with these lampstands, he sees olive trees that are pumping out like an everlasting supply of oil. So Zechariah also says again, what's up with that? Chapter 4, verse 6. Then he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to the governor Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain, you know, you great obstacle in their way? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. You shall be level, and he shall bring forward the top stone of the temple amid shouts of grace, grace to it. So this vision is to now encourage Zerubbabel, keep rebuilding the temple. But it won't be by human effort alone, not by strength, not by human strength, not by might, nor human power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. And so this endless supply of oil is really representing the presence and power of the Spirit of God. And the point is, keep working. It's a good message to us, isn't it? Keep giving yourself to God's purposes. Don't stop. Keep giving yourself to the purposes of God in the local church. Why? Because God is at work. It's not about our power. It's about God being at work among you by His power. So that's the mosaic. It's like a collage, really, isn't it? Just this collage of imagery. Now we should ask, what's the point? What's the point of all this? What was God communicating to this discouraged people 2,500 years ago? And what is he communicating through this to us today? Well, I think I would use two words to sum up the message. Comfort and expectation or, or hope. Comfort and expectation. And these, these two really go together. But I'm going to split them apart for a little bit. The comfort is this, that God is unstoppably, unstoppably advancing His purposes whether we realize it or not, whether we can perceive that or not. In other words, He's doing much more around us than we realize. You know, for these people, they're back in the land but life is hard. Life is really challenging. 
And so God gives this weary, discouraged people this word of comfort that says, I'm doing more than you realize. I'm doing more than you perceive. More is being accomplished than you can imagine. I've got emissaries patrolling the earth, these horses. I know those oppose you, they're at rest. They won't be at rest for long. I'm going to be at rest. In fact, I'm going to prosper my people so much, walls won't contain them. Rather, I'll be the wall around them, a wall of fire. God says over and over, the cumulative effect of these, of these visions is, is really God saying, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it, not you. I will accomplish this. I'm going to make it happen. It's on me, not by might or power, but by my spirit. In other words, God is saying, I am doing much more than you realize to accomplish my purposes and establish my people. He's doing more than you know in our day as well. We were given um, tickets to the Padres-Cubs game recently. Was that a week ago, I think it was, or something like that, which was a lot of fun. Um, I was rooting for the Padres. All my kids rooting for the Cubs. It was, it was an uncomfortable moment as they're pulling for the Cubbies. But the Padres won, by the way. Swept the world champion Cubs. But when you watch baseball, especially if you're there live, you focus on, I focus on, just the pitcher and the hitter. Right? That's where the action is. That's all the action. Just pitcher and hitter. So it's strike one. Okay, ball one. Okay, ball two. Okay, hit. Oh, or strikeout, whatever. But there's a manager there in the dugout simultaneously doing all kinds of things we don't see. He's positioning players. I want the shift on. I want players to move for this particular hitter because he always pulls the ball. Or should I pinch hit for my pitcher if you're in the National League? Or should I, should I put a different hitter in? What, what's my batting order? What, what are the percentages with this pitcher right now? Or should the runner on first try to steal second? Or should we put the hit and run play on? All kinds of things are going on, but we don't notice. We're focused on one little piece, pitcher and hitter. Imagine, imagine there that the manager was also, at the same time, directing not just the players, but every single food vendor, all the guys and gals hawking hot dogs and popcorn and beer and soda, he's controlling them too. I want you in section A, section B, section C, row five. And not only that, the manager is also involved with every single person seated, every single fan in the stadium. He's controlling every single thing that happens in their lives. Imagine the manager is doing all of that, and you've got a tiny microcosm of what God is doing in the earth. Managing it all, the entire stadium of history. We're focused on one little piece. Was that a ball or a strike? Oh, that was a foul ball. Oh, I swung too early. You see what I'm saying? A lot more is going on than you, than you realize. And Zechariah is here opening our eyes to the bigger picture. We might be saying, God doesn't seem to be at work in this country, or in Southern California at least. The church doesn't seem to be moving forward in the power of the Spirit. Maybe the cause of Christ is defeated. 
Maybe we should hunker down and wait a hundred years and then share the gospel later. But Jesus would not agree. He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades or death shall not prevail against it. Think about that, friends. He's not building any particular nation like that, including ours. He's not building a political party like that. He's not building any other organization like this. But of the church, he says, of his people, he says, I will build them. In fact, I am building them right now. He never takes a vacation. And nothing will stop me. Isn't that what God is saying to Zechariah? I'm going to establish my people. I'm going to fulfill my purposes. And no opposition will hinder me. None. Think about it. Just realize that, yes, the world is a mess. But for God's purposes, for Jesus building the church, everything's right on schedule. The train is not running late. Not, not a moment. Nothing's out of order in God's purposes and plans. Nothing's keeping him up late at night. Oh, gee, can't believe that happened. Oh, my goodness, I wasn't watching. The train is right on time. Nothing running late. Nothing out of order. God is accomplishing his purposes, overcoming all opposition, and building his people. So look with eyes of faith through this mosaic. See what's really going on. And let's just make it more contemporary. I don't know if you watched, as I did, some of the, some of the Director Comey testimony. We have fascinating political theater going on, right? We have, a, we have a massive political drama unfolding, and it will continue to unfold, I imagine. But friends, the big story, the real drama is not in Washington. I'm not minimizing the importance. But the real story, the big drama, is in the church. The big deal, what God is focused on, is this human, in this entire stadium of human history, is I'm building my church. I'm building my people, a bride for my son. You can know comfort with that. I'm not minimizing what else is going on. I'm saying there's comfort for you. Apply this to your own life. Make it really personal. I was reading in my discipleship journal reading plan. I'm not sure if anyone else is still reading the entire Bible this year for their chicken parmesan dinner. Or if I've discouraged you from that. In Ephesians 1, I was struck by this phrase. It so helped me. That God works all things according to the counsel of his will. That's, that's Zechariah 1 through 6. God works all things, not, not most things, not some things, but all things according to the counsel of his will. No exceptions. I had to ask myself, Tab, do you really believe that? And if you do, why are you anxious so often? Why? This is what Zechariah is doing for us. You're focused on the pitcher and the hitter, and that's fine. But there's a big picture with lots going on. And God is working it all out according to his purposes. So catch the big picture 
and then take comfort and peace in your little picture. But it's a message really of expectation also. I think there's comfort and there's hope, there's expectancy. The expectation, I might put relatedly like, like this, the expectation is that God's purposes that are unstoppably coming to pass, they find their sure fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And for these people, these returnees from exile, it's kind of a theological problem. It's not just our crops are failing. It's a theological issue. Will God keep His promises? is the big issue. Look at what the prophets have said. Even after the exile, they prophesied great things for us. It ain't happening. It's this tension of, of unmet expectations, unfulfilled expectations. And we know that tension, don't we? It's kind of like if you've got your dream vacation planned. You've got this expectation of your dream vacation. Finally, a cruise in the Caribbean. But on the day to leave, you oversleep. And you snow, now you're running late. And then you've got car trouble. The car won't start. Now you're really running behind. You feel this tension. Is this going to happen? Is this still going to get fulfilled? My dream vacation. And then you get to the airport, and the security line is so long. Like, oh, my goodness. I'm never... <laughs> You, you, you run through the airport, you make it to the plane, you, the plane pulls away, and then the pilot says, we've got some mechanical problems, we've got to come back to the gate. And you feel this tension of all my hopes and dreams and expectations. Are they going to happen? I'm going to miss my connecting flight. The cruise ship will leave without us. That's where these people were. This tension of unmet expectations. I thought God would do this. And that's where we live, too, in a way. Not all has been fulfilled yet, you're probably aware. Jesus has not yet come back. If he did, I missed it. We still await the renewal of all things. We still await a new heavens and a new earth. We still await being raised with glorified bodies. We still have future expectations that haven't yet come to pass. And so we live in the midst of that tension, waiting, wondering. And God, through Zechariah, is addressing that. And on this side of the manger, this side of the cross, this side of the empty tomb, we have more certainty than they did. Because we know how sin was taken away in a single day. And we know really in whom. We know the identity of the branch. We have four gospels about him. We have an entire Bible about the branch, Jesus Christ. We know that when Joshua the high priest is cleansed, we know that's a picture of what Jesus Christ has done for us. We know when we see the governor Zerubbabel, we know he's pointing forward to Jesus, our king. In fact, in fact, there's a postscript that you should read later to these visions. It's in chapter 6. I'll just give the gist to you. In chapter 6, some exiles arrive, and Zechariah is told, take some silver and gold from these guys, which I think has got a humorous, some hand over your gold, please, and make a crown. 
make a crown, and put it on the priest, Joshua, which is stunning because you don't do that. The priests don't wear crowns. The priests serve in the temple. Kings wear crowns, and kings build the temples. These are two separate offices in Israel, always kept separate, and now Joshua gets a crown? See what's happening? It's what we studied in the book of Hebrews. The prophet and the king come together in our great high, I'm sorry, the priest and king come together in our great high priest, Jesus, who made a once-for-all sacrifice, decisively taking away our sin in a day. Friends, we know, you know how these things have come to pass and are coming to pass, and you know, more importantly, in whom. So you, while you wait in that time of tension, you have greater assurance, greater certainty, greater hope. Are you hearing me? This is how God wants to meet you today. I do believe. He is accomplishing all of his purposes, and they find their sure, certain fulfillment in his Son. So feel this comfort and this all-growing expectancy. In fact, in fact, I thought, I thought the Heidelberg Catechism, since we're being a little bit historical today, the Heidelberg Catechism from 1563 caught these things. In its famous question one, it asks, what is your only comfort in life and death? I want to ask you that question. I, want you, I would ask you to ask yourself that question. What is your only comfort? your supreme comfort in life and in death, beyond the grave. What's your comfort for that? Here's the answer, and I'd like to read this out loud together if you would so indulge me. The answer is that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father not a hair can fall from my head, yea, that all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. That's the mosaic in Zechariah. You are, if you are in Christ, his body and soul, bought with his blood, delivered from the power of the devil. He will preserve and protect you. That's your comfort. And so you have this sure hope in Jesus for what lies beyond the grave. Amen. Let's pray to that end and take the Lord's Supper. Lord, thank you for this great comfort and great assurance. Would you now seal that to our hearts? Would you encourage the discouraged? Would you give us fresh hope in you as we take the bread and cup together? We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen.